from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket This is Spaz, and you have tuned into Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I appreciate you hanging out with me for a little while. I also appreciate if you like, comment, share, and subscribe this episode of my Beach Blanket Fort Bingo podcast. I have a very special guest today. It is Scottish singer-songwriter Chris Thompson. A lot of you might know him from his days with The Bathers, and uh, I was first introduced to Chris's extreme immense talent way back in the early 80s when he was the frontman for a band called Friends Again. Cherry Red Record has just reissued a two-CD expanded edition of Friends Again's debut album, and there's a lot more Bathers reissues and new music around the corner. I am going to discuss all of that with Chris, so sit back, relax, and enjoy, and thanks for hanging out right here at Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Scotland has given us some great music over the years, but the music seen in the late 70s and early 80s really brought Scottish pop to the forefront. From bands like the Bluebells, Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, Endgames, The Associates, Joseph K., Altered Images, and many others, it was very obvious that the Scottish music scene rivaled anything coming out of England, Australia, and the United States at the time. When Alan Horn founded Postcard Records in 1979, it really rattled the cage and unleashed a music scene that is still alive and kicking today. One of Scotland's finest bands was a quintet by the name of Friends Again. Fronted by singer-guitarist Chris Thompson, the band also featured keyboardist Paul McGeekin, guitarist James Grant, bassist Neil Cunningham, and drummer Stuart Kerr. Formed in 1981, Friends Again evolved into a magical combo that combined jangly guitar pop with funk and soul leanings, adding in luscious keyboards, great melodies, and a young, infectious groove. The quintet worked with producers like Bob Sargent and Tom Verlaine, laying down some highly original slabs of joyful pop, but their record label was slow in releasing their already finished album. After over a year of releasing a series of great singles and still having their album held up by record company politics, the band became understandably frustrated. In late 1984, Chris Thompson received a call from guitarist James Grant informing him that he was leaving Friends Again. Oh, he also added that Paul McGeekin and Stuart Kerr were leaving with him. It was only after the band split that the label decided to release their sole album, Trapped and Unwrapped. While his former bandmates became love and money, Chris Thompson went on to form The Bathers. The Bathers released two albums before Thompson joined former Lloyd Cole and the Commotions members Neil Clark and Stephen Irvine in a new project called Bloomsday. Surprisingly, Madness bassist Mark Bedford joined the project, 
but dropped out right after the album was completed. When Bloomsday ended their brief association, Thompson reactivated the Bathers, who went on to release three critically acclaimed albums on Marina Records in the 90s. But for the last two decades, Thompson has kept a low profile, focusing on his family over his music career. In that time, he has worked with Paul McGeekin on his musical project, Starless, a band that has more music coming in the new year. However, it looks like Thompson's career is about to take center stage again, beginning with a recent expanded two-CD reissue of Friends Again's only album, Trapped and Unwrapped, on Cherry Red Records, a compilation of early Friends Again demos on the Fire Station Records label, new updated Marina reissues of the Bathers 3 albums for the label, and a brand new Bathers album, it looks like 2020 is going to be a very busy year for Chris Thompson. Add in a possible live appearance or two from Friends Again and the Bathers, slated for later in the year, it's time to get reacquainted with a man himself. I was able to speak with Chris Thompson a few times, and we chatted about his career, including his time with Friends Again, The Bathers, and Bloomsday. Now, I'm very excited to share the highlights of those conversations with you. Welcome to The Blanket Fort, Chris Thompson. Before we talk about the recent Friends Again reissue and the forthcoming Bathers releases, let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember when you first decided that you wanted to become a musician? Was was there a pivotal moment that inspired you? Um, I think we we were very um, fortunate in that the, the punk new wave thing was just starting to explode as we, we were at that age where you, you think, oh, might you know, might like to be in a band. We were certainly into music as young teenagers and then punk came around and that was kind of the inspiration to think, okay, I don't need to be fantastic on my instrument to, to, to get on and do this. So that that was quite lucky. But I think a, couple, a year or two before that, you know, it was a sense of you had to be fairly accomplished to even try it. So we we were lucky and then it was, oh yeah, it was almost, almost an asset to be... Uh, incompetent but to have the energy and the ideas so we uh we kind of plunged right in on that and i remember it was a, a friend of mine who suggested it and he was much more from a coming from a heavy rock type background or that's what he was into things like kiss and uh, rainbow deep purple all these things which which weren't my thing at all but he said i was just walking back across the the cricket pitches one evening and I don't know what made him say, but he just said, oh, why don't we start a band? I was like, we were, yep, absolutely. So it was, it was just, I think it was at the forefront of all our minds. And it, as soon as he said it, it kind of made it real. Like, okay. So I remember going off and, well, how, the first, first problem was how to get hold of instruments. <laughs> so when I, no one had anything, you know. So it was, oh, the small issue of like, something to actually play the music on. So I remember borrowing an absolutely terrible guitar for my my dear aunt joy uh she had a spanish guitar but to be fair i don't think she could play i don't know how she'd acquired it or i never heard her play it and looking back i realized she probably had i don't know given it as a christmas present when never never got around to actually learning but it it was 
I remember it being sort of brought out and the family were gathered around and, okay, play us something. I'm sitting there just about the first. I don't know what given them the impression that I don't remember claiming to, to be able to play it, but suddenly we're sitting there and this, I think I, I think it made an absolutely dreadful attempt at Mull of Kintyre. <laughs> Because just because just because the rhythm was kind of there, ding, ding, ding you know, was, but I believe it was maybe had roughly had one finger down on the set. It was more of a kind of scratchy Muller Cantire, so you you kind of really got a vision of hell opening up before you hear. I think quite shortly after that, I think I I remember um, selling a lot of my treasured. Early, early vinyl singles I'd acquired, which of course makes, fills me with horror looking back, but that's some absolutely amazing punk and new wave singles that I'd, I'd bought. You know, I'd just gone a bit mad and, was, you know, some quite things that would be very rare now, I suppose. But I remember selling them off at pretty much bargain basement prices to acquire a second hand Les Paul guitar. So we were up and running. We had, we had some instruments. I think the drummer was on the classic knitting needles on a stool type approach for for a few months uh, but other guys you know someone got a cheap bass and and an old wham amplifier the all the classics and we we started to make a, a pretty god awful noise um you know tuning tuning and things were we'd still to discover all that kind of stuff <laughs> you know so two strings held down as a kind of rudimentary bar chord type but you know, I suppose you could churn out some clash riffs and things like that in a very with a bit of attitude. And then we we jumped between things like the clash and, and trying to do pistols cover versions, but also to keep the other half of the band happy. Uh, kiss cover versions and things like that. So it was it was a pretty unholy sound, I think. Um but that got us that got us started, you know, that that was the, the all I think fairly shortly after that, you know, that band, you know, the the, the strain was too great. The creative difference. The guys who've become the core of friends again, Paul McGeekin. Uh, a keyboard player and Neil Cunningham, the bassist, were all, we were all at school together, and it was that sort of shared love of music. When people were wondering about clutching whatever they bought in the big city that weekend, and you, you know you had these see-through bags, and it was all oh, right. He's got such and such, so that got us talking, and they were they were in much the same boat as myself. You know, Paul, Paul, I think had acquired a very basic. Yen synthesizer, whatever that was, but it, remember it was quite small. It was probably only two octaves, and it made a, you know some suitably squonky sounds. And Neil somehow acquired a bass, and again he was starting pretty much from zero. And we 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 did a couple of you know punky gigs in a local local scout hall, which was a steep learning curve to put, to put it mildly. When we got in front of an audience, you know it was not. It was no love at first sight from the audience's point of view. We were sort of probably lucky to escape, escape without a, a beating, you know, <laughs> for uh, what we inflicted on them.
when you formed Friends Again, did you have an idea or sound in your head that you wanted to achieve when uh, putting the band together, or did the band sound just evolve naturally? Well, it did evolve. I mean, from that early period, where it was very much punk, new wave, and then I remember, I remember one of the early cover versions we did, which sounded actually one of the things that sounded quite good was. Do you remember a band called Fisher Z? Pretty Paracetamol was the single. Yeah, that was, that was one that I think because there was a great keyboard fill and Paul nailed that. So we were sort of evolving out of that punky thing and thinking back into that, that new wave energy, but it was also a little bit shades of what the new new romantics and people became, the sort of electronic side came to the fore. Neil and I particularly were, were massive Bowie fans. I mean, my our first gig or my first gig was was Bowie at the at the Glasgow Apollo, which is a fantastical venue and unfortunately demolished now. Um, but you know, you sort of forty feet away from from the great man. It was the stage tour seventy eight, and so we had that Bowie influence, which so many of the contemporaries had, mixed with the punk, mixed with Velvet Underground, and then the the postcard scene really started to to blow up in Glasgow which had the big Velvet Underground influence with a bit of Bowie, quite, quite strong songwriting tradition, I think, came out of, but also quite, you know, poppy and energetic. The, the punk energy sort of was carried through that. So we did go through, we also went through a, a bit of a Joy Division phase in the late 70s, early, early 80s at the, the time when Joy Division were really breaking out. Um, we saw them live and thought that was fantastic. Um, so we had that quite a few things percolating there, coming from the punk. Uh, you know, that Paul, thinking back, was he was coming from much more of a ELP, Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Sergeant Pepper were the kind of things. I remember him playing. You know, when he used to go and meet him at his house. So he had a you know very different set of influences coming in. So it was a bit yeah a bit of a mixed bag. But the t- as we were evolving a sound, we, we kind of moved through the Joy Division phase. Then, as I say, Postcard really exploded with quite a, a, a very strong pop sensibility, but quite quirky and, and messed up, which was 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 good. You know, it, it was pop with a, a real edge and a quirkiness about it. So I think that that kind of helped to define our sound. It, I don't know. It 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 did seem to happen quite naturally, just through the the melting pot of those influences, rather than having a a grand master plan. The final piece in the jigsaw was when James James Grant, the guitarist, came on board, who again had, had really sat in his bedroom for years, really kind of mastering his craft to quite an amazing degree for a a guy in his teens. And so he, you know, he came on board. He was like an technically incredibly accomplished, and was bursting with ideas. It was, it was a lot of competition within the band to someone come up with one idea, then, oh no, try this as well. So it was very, it was very, very creative, bouncing off each other. So when we got to those, the first studio sessions, there was just like ideas flying around everywhere. I mean, and it, and strictly speaking, probably too many in any one song, but I think that ended up being the charm of the thing. You know, it's like when I listened to the first, some of the first demos, I was like, oh, oh, what's happening now? You know, like another riff for another harmony comes flying in. But that's great. It's just that amazing energy about the thing. Um, you know, really pushing it, trying to thinking, uh, yeah, this is the most amazing thing ever. That's the classic young band thing, isn't it? That that uh, insane optimism, which is just amazing. Wake me up. 
Postcard Records signaled that something new was on its way. Did Postcard and the early days of Orange Juice, Joseph K., Aztec Camera, did that have an immediate impact on the Glasgow scene, or did people realize its importance in hindsight? I, I think it had a huge influence then and there, certainly on people in bands in Glasgow, as, as the history of the, of the music in the city bears out, was full of bands making you know, a lot of good music was being made and still is um, and I remember the guy who was initially playing guitar with friends again he, he had I think he'd, he'd maybe just started uni so he was a little bit he was really plugged into the scene and he turned up with those early postcard singles right away you know he had this he said check, you know, check these out and I was like wow I mean the sound of it also the, the whole presentation the quirky artwork and everything so I immediately rushed out and got what I could, and then they seem to they seem to be hitting us quite quite quickly with with follow up releases. And there was Joseph K, the first Aztec Camera singer was amazing. At both sides of that, uh, just like Gold, we could send letters. It was, it was just so much suddenly coming out. So I think it had a profound influence on the the band scene. It just it really energised people, and they felt, hang on, you know this. There's something going on here. I want a piece of this. Well, where did the band name Friends Again come from? Well, I, I had a. I'm pretty sure it was it was a song. I had it, which was never really finished as it turned out. But I had. It, I thought oh, that'd be quite a good title for a song. So I started working on that, and then there was sort of pressure to come up with a band name that was more suitable to the music we were then making. But previously, we'd had a couple of. We had a punky name, which was the Craniums. We had Acquire Holy, which was our Joy Division phase name. Uh, I think there's one called Future Days, D-A-Z-E, which was our Fisher Z Electronica phase name. But none of those you know, really worked. But then suddenly, uh, Friends Again was there. And I said, well, why do we try that as a, as a band name, thinking it was a temporary solution? Um, I remember Bobby Bluebell saying, oh, no, it's a great song title, but no, it's no good for a band name. But like so many of these things, it just it just stuck. You know, quite happy with it in hindsight. Um, but uh, yeah, there we go. It just, it was the song, the song title initially. Well, you released your first single, Honey at the Core, in 1983 on your own Moonboot label, but you'd already signed with Phonograph at that time. Was that an exciting time for the band? You know, you're you're putting out your first record and you're essentially already signed to a major label. That's right. Well, yeah, the record company had come up and, and, and seen us. We initially signed a publishing deal quite quickly with with a part of CBS songs. And so that gave it a little bit of money to buy better gear and the luxury of a bit of time. And they brought Phonogram Records up to see us live who wanted to sign us, but they felt it was a good idea for us to carry on and, and at least put out one indie single. 
So they, even though they were lurking in the wings, I think they even paid for the, the studio time. And it was the same studio we'd done the initial demos in. It's just a place we loved called Palladium in Edinburgh. So we did the Honey, the Honey, the Core, and Lucky Star as a B-side in there, and they put it out on the the Moonboot label. Rough Trade distributed it, but we had the the reassurance of of knowing that you no know, a deal was was there. They had the option. They had the first option on us, and the you know the the once that was done and the the reviews were pretty positive. They said, right, okay, that, let's go. We, we do want to get you fully signed up now for an album deal. So it did happen very quickly. And it was, you know, Glasgow was awash with he and our men at gigs at that time. It, you know, so many bands got signed. It was it was, it was was a very, very exciting time. So we, we went from, you know, on the dole, really, you know, really a struggling thinking, you know, obviously the inevitable pressure from parents, et cetera, like, you know, you're just wasting your time. Just suddenly we, we got the get out of jail free card and, and got signed up. It was quite extraordinary. Uh, and we had a very kind of go ahead young manager, one of our friends, same ages, who got himself down to London and really pushed his way into trendy nightclubs and things. Speaking to Steve Strange and the kind of new romantic scene, which was bubbling up by then, Spandau Ballet just fronted it out, just that started dropping our name, etc. And, you know, I remember him kind of saying, yeah, I was speaking to Boy George and, you know, Boy George loves the demo, and so he was probably he was probably like putting one over on us as the band, you know. But it got us hyped up as well, and the self belief, you know. And so next next thing we were down and getting all this stuff signed up, which was just just fantastic. Um, so it was quite a it was a bit of a whirlwind. Throughout the rest of 83 and 84, you released a, a, a series of fantastic singles. Sunkissed, uh, there was the Friends Again EP, State of Art, uh, South of Love. And you worked on many of those tracks with uh, producer Bob Sargent, who had also worked with Haircut 100, English Beat, and many others. Do you feel that he captured the Friends Again sound in the studio? Uh, and yeah, I think to a large extent. Yeah, I think he was. I think he was a, a, a great producer for the band because he was he was very old school. Uh, his favorite period in bands were things like the band, Little Feet, Dylan. Um, so you know, quite classic stuff. Quite the way that stuff was recorded. You know, real pure analog, old school recordings, and. I really, really suited, particularly the guitars, the, the whole approach and the drums and things. So he resisted the re- the siren call of the record company to, you know, 80s of you know, get horrific lin- lindrum samples and things. Then there was there was a pressure from them to do that. And yeah, but that's not necessarily going to suit these songs. So Bob really fought our corner. And yeah, I think he was he was a very kind of, very calm presence. I think he was quite stoned most of the time, but you know, he just had a very avuncular, gentle, great sense of humour. We'll twinkle about him, and you know, he he was great on harmonies and things as well. He, he sang some harmonies on the record, as well as I mean, one one thing the band were really really kind of lucky in that Stuart the drummer had a most incredible falsetto voice, a lot of power there. 
and he could really, you know, that, you know, listening back to it now, he's like, wow, he just, he was a good drummer, but he also had this other thing in his, that he brought to the table. Um, and of course, James is, was a really good singer and great, great, great on harmonies and things as well. And then Bob stepped in on that. I think he was a great, great producer for the record. I mean, the slight, the slight downside was towards the end, the record company, again, it, it was almost par for the course at the time. They, they, they said, oh, we, we want some remixes. We, and they wanted to try and basically make it brighter and more in your face of the fashion of the time. And I remember Bob being a bit cheesed off that we were sent down to Wales with Pat Moran to remix in, in Rockfield Studios, which uh, much later found out was where Queen of Dunbar, made Rhapsody and all the rest of it on, on the piano we used to miss about on kind of things that passed us by at the time. So we were sent down there and I think roughly half the record was, was mixed by this guy, Pat Moran, and it, it's fine, but there's a few touches, uh, perhaps the delays on the brass and things that Bob saw red when he heard that and he, he phoned me and said, oh, you know, this is you know, a disaster. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience, and we just you know we we stayed in London off and on for months on end in a big rented apartment, and just walked up through through Regent's Park to to uh, St John's Wood and got on with it. So we we're incredibly fortunate how that played out. Was she something worth loving? She was all that and more, helping watchers on shores. With subtle beauty She was all that She was all that It's my eyes that tell me She's a work of art Well, when I mention the name Friends Again, most people who know the band immediately cite State of Art as their favorite song. Did you know back then that the song was special? Not really. I'm the, I guess some people gave me that opinion. I mean, for example, Bobby Bluebell, I remember him used to all hang out in this place called The Rock Garden. There was lots of bands in there. And he, he said, oh, yeah, that, that State of Art, well, that's a fantastic song, fantastic song. And, you know, and I almost remember feeling, oh, is he just, why is he just winding me up? Is he, is he joking? And then there was another guy called, if you remember a band called James King and the Lone Wolves. Now, James King was quite a scary character. Um, it, was, it, was, it was reputed that he had always carried an axe with him to the rock garden. And he had kind of wore one of those, kind of an almost an old grandpa-like sports jacket. And he had very thick, what we'd call national health spectacles, and big milk bottle specs and sort of greasy hair and a slight squint I think or maybe because the lenses were so thick you know but basically knowing he was wielding an axe or at least carrying an axe in his pocket made you nervous to be around but he came up to me and said state of art that's fantastic you know and again you're thinking wow well hang on did I take this with a pinch I did take it with a pinch of salt I mean I'd I guess, you know, it wasn't particularly, it was never really an arrogant or particularly self-confident performer or writer or all the rest of it. But yeah, there were some nice little moments along the way that gave me enough confidence to, to think, well, we must be doing something right. There must be this, this song. This song seems to strike a chord.
television's Tom Verlaine produced Swallows in the Rain. How did that connection come about? Yeah, again, just I think it was a lucky run. He, I think he he was set definitely based in London at the time. I think he might have been part of the same label, you know, the whole stable under Phonogram, Polydor, Polygram, whatever it was called at that time. I think that might be the case. Or London Records, again, part of the, under the same umbrella. But he certainly was living and working in London. And I think the word got out that he was looking for production work. And Neil and I, particularly, and, the, and friends again, were, were massive television fans, and particularly Marquis Moon. And it was like, you know, Tom Verlaine, this would be incredible. So the record company approached him and, and he said, yeah, I'll come down. And so we had a demo of Swallows in the Rain, which he listened to and, and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do something. So we, we took, he came down to rehearsals somewhere in North London sat in, made a few suggestions on the arrangement, and then we went into the townhouse in West London for certainly several days, maybe even a week. So it was very interesting working with him. He, he tried, tried various things, particularly on the guitar sounds and what have you. There's quite a weird abstract so- solo on the, the record. That was him doing something strange with various amplifiers all around the room. So to get particular sounds, I think there was a kind of almost an Eno-like approach to some of the things. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was it was quite a daunting. He was quite an austere figure, I think, was, was the phrase I would use. You know, of course, you instinctively want to go into fanboy mode a little bit and say, well, you know, ask him all the questions. And uh, we were intrigued by the fact that how did he feel about Bowie doing the cover of Kingdom Come on Scary Monsters? And I do remember there was an opening there because one of the ta- the young tapops had a had a, I think he had a Scary Monsters T-shirt on, so that kind of gave us a, all right, you know, you know, you know, Tom Tom's got a song on that album. And it was, all right, and I didn't know that, but so we said to Tom, oh, what did you make of the cover version? And I, I just remember being a bit sniffy and saying, oh, I thought it was a bit Vegas, which I didn't really know what he meant at the time. But this time it's definitely not complimentary. But yeah, it was kind of. Yeah, I think he you know, let it be known he wasn't really interested in shooting the bees, but and that, you know, fair enough. Yeah, it, it was a, an interesting experience, but he was quite a... I, th- I remember he lived a, quite a vampire-like existence, so he had a very grey pallor, but he uh, used to stay up all night. I mean, I, I, and he liked to work work very, very late. I think if he could, he would he would have been in the studio overnight, and, you know, it was all... Very strange, very, very interesting experience, and I, I think... You know, I like the way the track worked out. It seemed to take forever for the album, Trapped and Unwrapped, to be released. And by that time, the band had split up. Did that come as a shock or did it feel like kind of a, a logical conclusion after all the frustration that you had endured with the record label? And- I, I think it, I think it was a bit of a shock at the time, personally speaking. I, I mean, I can see with hindsight that, you know, the, the damage had been done, particularly, as you say, the album was delayed. I think for the health of the band, the right thing to do would have been, you know, roughly at the time State of Art was coming, certainly in 1983 and that first wave of recordings when we had all the songs we substantially done the done the album they should have just gone with it but the thinking then was let's get the hit single they thought state of art was going to be a massive hit then the ep both of which kind of nudged just outside the top 40 in the uk and 
we suffered from this thing where they weighted records if they had unusually high sales in any particular area. And of course, we had particularly high sales around Scotland, Glasgow, because that's where we were from. But the story we were told at the time we were kept out of the 40 because of that strange spike in sales, which was probably absolutely you know, a legitimate reason for it. But we missed out on that vital getting in and then getting on top of the pops and getting the bigger platform. And the frustration, I think, particularly with James, the guitarist, you know, he was starting to write more and more. He's a, na- you know, he was a natural guy who want, wants the attention, wanted to be at the front. So looking back, that there was inevitability that he would, you know, why wouldn't he want to just do his own thing? But it was quite a shock to me in the autumn of 84 where you know we'd had a few puffy moments it was never this kind of screaming at each other type setup then we were more kind of more introverted than that you know and there was tension simmering there had been incidents with people insulting other people's girlfriends and things like that it's <laughs> like silly stuff but you know you know a bunch of guys on the you know living in dodgy bed and breakfast hotels and things on the road of course there's going to be tensions but it it was a surprise that when the when the dam broke and just seemingly out of the blue, James just called me up and said, it's over. And, you know, I, I want to start another band and the rest of the guys want to start that other band too. So it was a sort of dismissal by any other name. So yeah, that was a, was a bit of a shock, but the, the writing was the wall. I think there's a head in the sand approach a bit to it. As, as I say, I think the, the record company strategically made a bit of a blunder, but not just giving us that leash and letting us crack on. They, they created a bit of a creative jam because they were holding on and holding on. And in fact, just to go back to Swallows and the Rain briefly, I remember actually that I think that was one of the last things we recorded that ended up on the album. So in a way that that's the point, really, that should have been the start of the second album. I think those sessions had things run to a more logical and natural dynamic progression. But there we, there we go. It's just the way it was. And, you, you know, nothing can be done about it now. must be said uh sort of in, in postscript that the band members still or at least right now you remain friends again oh yeah 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 i think yeah we, and we worked we all worked together off and on over the years which is great you know whether it's some live gigs um never never fully as friends again but you know james came and helped me on some of my my bathers albums and you know, I went on to to work with Paul, and still I'm working working with Paul, which is great. I was out with Neil recently for for a coffee, and uh, you know, just yeah, it's really good. Stuart, the drummer's kind of gone to ground. People have attempted to contact him, but he's you know doesn't seem to be interested. Which is that's a bit sad. But everyone else is is fine. You know, it's it's, it's great. You know, there's no no hard feelings. Well, listening to the album some 35 years later, it still retains that same magical pull that it did back then. What are your final thoughts on the album these days? Yeah, I'm hugely proud of it. I mean, it just, uh, and it brings back on the whole, I think I think time softens the harder edges of any, the tough times around making it. And you just remember the great times and, you know, it was just fantastic fun, great opportunity. Um, and yeah, just very proud of the songs we put together. And when I listened to, recently listened to State of Art uh, on a 12-inch single and just thought, wow, that's, that's a really great sounding record. You know, and you, what more can you say than that's, that's something to be proud of? 
we've had that opportunity and we delivered that. So, yeah, it's just um, a feeling of quiet pride. Always in the shadow of young flowers Their eyes that drag you jealous to the door Always in the shadow of these young flowers And with a killing slenderness So nearly gone The Bathers found you heading in a different musical direction. Was this change a direct result of what you had experienced with friends again and you wanted to go do something different and challenge yourself? I, I think so. I, I I suppose it came from, you know, we were, we were kind of getting a bit of flack for being part of a jangly twee was the word that was used a lot, which we did find irritating. And I think, you know, for cut loose on my own, I, I guess I was able to slightly shape that direction more than, than um, just try something different. I think I wanted to do something a bit darker, or less, I guess it was sort of less guitar heavy, but it, it did form around the, the songs. I, I think the first Bathers album wasn't necessarily a million miles away from some elements of the Friends Against thing. But, you know, as it, as it went on, I just, I started, things like uh, Talk Talk Spirit of Eden had come out I certainly remember that influencing my thinking on the second Bathers album. I'd also been to, you know, I'd seen Tom Waits live in Edinburgh, and it's you know, it's quite dark and quite strange. And just just that pushing it a bit, just trying some different things. Again, it's sort of shying away a bit from trying to do anything too commercial. It didn't seem to matter to me too much. I just just kind of followed my instincts, really. I mean, you're, it's always a, it's always a bit of a mashup between what you're striving for, your instincts, what you're drawn to, and what you realistically can achieve. You know, with the the cards you have. You know, so yeah, I wasn't particularly conscious ever. I, I guess I, I, another band that were a big influence in different ways to all of us, the the, the Blue Nile from Glasgow, had such a striking debut album. I thought, hang on, this is. This is interesting. It was very stripped back, complete kind of. Again, they had one or two songs that were quite commercial in their own way, but it was a slow burn type thing. It was a real album, album, which um, also really appealed to me. And I, I think I remember also buying Van Morrison's Astral Weeks in a jumbo sale for pennies, and absolutely loving that. You know, so a jumble of all those influences, and I just thought, yeah, the, you know, I think the mood was affected by the fact that it was suddenly. Can I still do this? Do I want to? I think I definitely wanted to carry on doing music, but uh, whatever confidence I had was, you know, pretty shaken up, I suppose, because I suddenly was on my own from the the security of being, as such, of being in a, a school band, essentially, as I was saying earlier. It's, yeah, it was kind of suddenly out of my own. It was quite quite lonesome. <laughs> and even though some of the you know guys were kind of like, James is kind enough to come in and do some backing vocals and things on the first album. Yeah, it was it was just a whole strike out, a whole go out and mow and try something different. The world was alone, snaking through my heart like a slow train. Ever glad you burned me up. Way up into the night, I was limping, but I come of age, and you know, I love you, sorry. After the first two Bathers albums, you became part of a band called Bloomstay, which featured Neil Clark and Stephen Irvine from uh, Lloyd Crowell and the Commotions. 
was that initially meant to be a side project or were you planning on it being a full-time band and and how did mark bedford get involved well the, the story there was i was just about finishing up the second Bathers album which I'd recorded speculatively you know I just self-funded it was doing it in, in my favourite studio in Edinburgh Palladium and I got a call there from the guys who were managing had managed Lloyd Cole and the commotions who had split by that point and so the two Neil and Stephen were looking for a new project or a singer and the manager said would you be interested so Neil sent me up a couple of backing track demo things to see if I could come up with some top line and some lyrics for them, which which I duly did. I think the first song was a song that was called Serene and ended up on the Bloomsday album. So I wrote the song. He, he liked what he heard and went down to London, met them. We all got on well. And we they had they had contacts with, with Ireland I think, and interest there quite quickly. So Ireland gave us some more demo time, carried on writing, adding to the pool of songs that we had, uh, just, you know, straight three-way collaboration, which is good. And I said, as things started to get serious and the Ireland interest really stepped up and I said, look, yeah, we want to sign you to an album deal. I said, I, I had to call the, the head of A&R, or I think it might have been the managing director of Ireland, Clive Banks, and say, well, look, there's only one problem here. I'm just finishing off this album, this thing I've got called The Bathers, which I've probably never heard of. And I said, look, I've just done this thing. How do we fit this into the equation? I don't want to sign up with Bloomsday and find that I can't release this. He said, oh, hang on, let me hear it. And so I sent it down and I got a call a week or so later saying, yeah, I'm listening to it now. Yeah, it sounds great. You know, I, I, to, to be fine, I don't, I don't think it particularly was his thing, but he basically bought me out. He just said, right, okay, we, we'll put it out on Island, which was great. And he, he paid the recording costs, gave me, a, I think, a small advance on it as well. And that was a very neat way to wrap up uh, the fact the bathers were suddenly on Island. But, and he was also quite happy as far as the, the main event, as far as he was concerned, was the Bloomsday project. So we, as Sweet the Seat came out, I was already, by that point, in the studio with Neil and Stephen doing the Bloomsday record. And Mark was just, I don't know how Stephen the drummer knew him, but it's just the North London music scene. He said, I've got a mate who at that point had left Madness. I think he was suffering from a bit of just stressed out and he didn't, didn't want to be on the road and, you know, taking time out. So he was looking for a project and he came and rehearsed the album with us in a studio and then recorded it, uh, which was great. A lovely guy, fantastic bass player. But uh, unfortunately, Neil and Mark had a few little run-ins creatively. It was just silly stuff, really, but it was very intense. And Mark did the sessions, but decided he didn't, he didn't want to be involved in the live side or anything. But he did a great job on the, the recordings. But very much the picture was to do a very commercial record. I mean, the kind of things that I mean, Neil and Stephen had had a certain amount of recognition and commercial success with, with Lloyd Cole. Uh, I mean, Rattlesnakes had done very well. They toured extensively. They, you know, they, they were quite a few levels beyond anywhere I'd, I'd ever got to. So they wanted to repeat that uh, in an even bigger way if possible. So the kind of things they were referencing were, was, um, you know, NXS even, you know, the police, NXS, have you heard the new police thing? Have you heard? I mean, they had that musicality. I mean, Neil was an absolutely phenomenal musician. So they had the musicality to deliver that sort of thing. So we went to the studio with that. That the brief was to make, you know, a rocky album, but very much with commercial success in mind. You know, they were thinking, well, we, we want to be doing 
you know, big venues, you know. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it was ever... I think there's some good stuff on the record, and I, I feel that commercial imperative slightly detracted from the end result. I think had we just followed a creative instinct more than an artistic instinct, we'd have probably ended up with an even well, a better album. It didn't so much peter out, but there was the terrible crash in the early when about that time where, where the record companies just cleared everyone out. I think it was a, you know a massive financial crash or something went on at around about that sort of nineteen ninety one period. I think, I think it came out in 1990. And, uh, so we, amongst many, many others, it was suddenly the writing was the wall. Record company just losing interest. Big changes in the personnel. A&R sacked. Managing director sacked. New new department. Okay, what's this Bloomsday thing? And, you know, the new guy came down to listen and you could tell it was sort of, yeah, yeah, making the right noises, but his heart wasn't really in it. And so we were kind of a bit, you know, sapped of morale. And... I remember it was just one of the new a and guys, he sequenced up the record. And I, I think we'd sort of so much kind of lost the thread of it by that stage that it was done, but it was like, you know, I, I just think it was very, very patchy, But some, which is a shame because there was some fantastic ideas. And uh, I, I remember just being blown away by some of the things Neil was delivering on guitar. But it's almost like we over-egged it rather than just following, as I say, that pure, just, you what, what sounds good to us as, a, as an artist rather than trying to conform to a commercial stereotype, particularly of things that I didn't particularly care for. You know, and you, in excess, yeah, sure, you know, some, there's some good singles there, but it's not, not my bag. By 1993, The Bathers Were Back, you released the first of three acclaimed albums for Marina Records. Since then, there have been a few releases, but the band has been pretty quiet. However, there's actually a lot happening with The Bathers Camp in the not-too-distant future. Can you fill the listeners in on what's been going on and what's coming around the corner? Absolutely. Well, over the over the last year or so, I've been doing a lot of sessions, particularly with... Um, some quite big orchestrated pieces, which is something I wanted to do for a while. So I, managed, I got very lucky with some, some guys who'd helped me play playing some live shows who happened to be setting up uh, essentially a production-type setup for orchestrated film, TV, bands. And I was, a bit, I was the guinea pig, essentially, which meant I got to work with incredible string players for you know affordable amount of money. And we, we basically you know recorded an album's worth of stuff in this last year or so and it's very much ready to go I'm, I'm just completing mixing at this this time I'm thinking next spring May, June next year I would be very disappointed if it's not out by then um, new album with enough stuff in the can to really follow that up quite quickly with a, a second album of material so really I kind of feel the 
want to move up a few gears and yeah, been away for quite a while, just enjoying family life and things and doing doing other things. But it, it feels yeah, it, it it's time now to get the new stuff out. As you alluded to, the um, the three records I did with Marina Records in Germ- Hamburg, Germany, in the, in the mid '90s, uh, they are all coming, getting the first release on vinyl, which is fantastic. Uh, they've been slightly reworked in order to fit on vinyl. I mean, as you as you well know, you can't kind of get 60, 70 minutes on there easily. So I find I went back to the the tapes and you know went through, so got the best of everything I had. And found in, in that process, I think I've actually improved the albums to, to my ears anyway. I think they'd sound like better pieces now that they're down at the sort of 20, 21 minutes aside length. I think I'm you know, very proud of the three records I did with them. Uh, they're coming out. First one is uh, Lagoon Blues, which should be available end of January, February. And then the others will follow roughly a couple of months apart. We're just going to spread it over the first six or eight months of next year. The, the Marina Trilogy, as, as they're calling it, they, they'll all be out, which is, is fantastic. And somewhere amongst that, I'll get this new Baylor's record called Sirenesque. Uh, it will be available, as I say, hopefully May-June. And yeah, I'll do some live dates and all the rest of it to go along with that. The night is young Young is the night The Marina albums, they're the actual original albums or they're re-recorded? I, there's essentially they are the original albums, but I had to do some remixing, something. I, I removed the odd song. I did. I found version, slightly shorter versions here or there to make it all work in terms of the running time. And there's some couple of things I I have reworked, re-recorded. To me, it still feels that the um, it has the essence of those original albums and all the, the hopefully all the good things about them, but I'm very pleased that it just feels to me, yeah, these are the definitive versions now as I want that kind of set of songs to sound and be. Yeah, so the important thing is is even long-time Bathers fans are going to have to go out and get these again, which is really exciting. You know, some of them have been up on Spotify and what have you, which, you know, you know some people are saying, oh, that's changed a bit and a bit disconcerted, which I understand, but generally I've had a lot of very good feedback from people as well. You know, I mean, we were lucky enough on the uh, the middle of the, the Sunpowder album from 1995. I was very, very lucky to to work with Elizabeth Fraser from the Cocktail Twins on that record. And I think in the remixes, we've managed to kind of pull her vocals forward a bit in a way that I think the original mixes are just slightly lost. So it feels more, you know, it's, it's such the, the stuff she did was just amazing. 
and I, I, to me it seems to sing out more more clearly than, than ever before so yeah I'm very very excited and pleased about it and yeah I think for anyone who knows the original albums inside out from the first time around there's certainly going to be plenty of new bits and pieces and surprises different recognisably the same records the same songs but with plenty of changes in atmosphere and, de- and the details uh, have changed in quite significantly in places so hopefully touches a lot of bases I mean that's just a as I say, it all, it all stemmed from the fact that when I first thought about vinyl, then I, I looked at the running time space so much. You know, it can't be done unless you go down double vinyl route, which is, I don't know, just seemed to get a bit silly. And I, I think, I think the, the albums just felt like, yeah, they, I love, the, I love the old, I love the classic format, the sort of twenty, you know, what, what, we, what I grew up with, you know, twenty minutes aside or thereabouts. It's just something when it works, it's just fantastic. And to go back to that discipline and make those things work in that way. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the challenge and the journey of that and sort of reacquainting myself with those songs. And when I when I sort of signed off on the sending the rework stuff to 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 Berlin for mastering, it was kinda of like kinda of waving by waving goodbye to your your kids leaving home or something. You know, it was quite emotional. Just yeah, you sort of I say made a lovely reacquaintance with them and but yeah, very very proud of it. I think there's a great bunch of songs and yeah, I'm really, really happy that they're going out in this format. And you can see it now Down the roads of the muddy Through winds and clean Love your confusion Lover and see For me love the angel For me love the dream With new and old music in the stores by two different bands that you were involved with, is it hard to adjust your mindset and focus on one thing at a time? It's a bit, you know. I'm trying to just take it bite-sized chunks, as they say. Uh, just <laughs> take it once instead of time. I mean, fantastic. There's, there's this taste of the friends again thing being well received and, and having going out. There's talk of, you know, should we do a couple of gigs of the Friends Again thing? I hope that will happen. It's it's, it's sort of penciled in for the spring. That would be great. Then I've got all this Bather stuff reissues and the new album to deal with. You know, there's plenty going on with, uh, but as we know, the danger is, you know, the months come and go. They turn into a year, so I've got to be keep my guard up to make sure it, it happens in a meaningful fashion, you know, and we're not... You know, you're not calling me up and say in a year's time and say, "Oh, that stuff is really coming out. What happened?" So I, I feel there's a momentum there. You know, it's uh, yeah, there's there's stuff. It, it's it's the push is on now. You know, we know how quickly a couple of decades can slip away. Never mind a few years. So it's time to push on and just just uh, enjoy it. You know, there's no real pressure. Where can listeners get more information and stay updated on all things uh, Chris Thompson? I'd, I'd say that. The best bet generally is, is our uh, Facebook page. Um, the Bathers are on Facebook. We're also, we're also on Twitter. I'd say that's where most stuff is going on. But definitely the, the Facebook page is there. It's not, not my favourite thing, but gradually all the digital platforms are being sorted out. And I think the Marina records are up there already. People want a quick uh, listen to that. It's there. And we'll just yeah, just keep keep playing. Keep certainly Facebook will stay well updated with these releases. Um, you can also 
keep an eye on the friends friends again have got Twitter and a website up and running easy enough to find. So it's all yeah, it's all dovetailing the things, various strands, bits of information coming down those channels. So it's all good. Is this or just the state of art? Well, that's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Chris Thompson, for hanging out and discussing Friends Again, the Bathers, and Blooms Day. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you and thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe. And until the next time, smell you later.